Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation on the FinTech Blueprint. I'm really excited to have with us today Sam Bobley, who is the founder and CEO of Oculus. Oculus is an artificial intelligence company that's focused on document automation and underlies a number of very popular and large FinTech players. So I'm really excited to talk to Sam about how he built the company, about artificial intelligence, and the future of our industry. Sam, welcome to the conversation. Hey, Lex. Thanks so much for having me on. Excited to dive in. You had your founder experience quite early on in your career. How did you fall down that rabbit hole? Yeah, for sure. So I I was fortunate in the sense that I grew up always knowing that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. He started a bunch of companies over the course of his career. You know, some were failures, some were successful. And from a very early age, I wanted to follow in his footsteps and, you know, never really thought about going into corporate America. I was, I was focused on getting into entrepreneurship from the early days. I jumped into Oculus right when I was 22 years old. I was bouncing various ideas when I was in high school and college. And I ended up founding Oculus when I was 22 years old. My co-founder was a buddy of mine from high school named John Gersey, and I was also you know, really lucky to have my dad and some of his former business partners helping us think about how to get a business off the ground and kind of you know, providing us a launching pad to, to build what ultimately became Oculus. Before we get into that substance, what kind of companies did your dad build that you saw growing up? Were they all different? Were they tech products? What can you tell us about what you learned there? Yeah, for sure. It was really a wide range of different industries. You know, he was in the publishing business for many years. In the 1980s, he was producing Broadway plays. He invented a company called Video Mailbox On Demand, which was actually a Netflix predecessor that I wrote a blog post about once. It ended up not really getting super far along, but that's one of the big, you know, misses that he always, you know, reminisces on. And then when I was growing up, he was building a company called Phone Charge, which was a payments company that allowed users to pay their bills using a touchtone telephone and then ultimately using online payments. So I was most interested in financial technology. That was the business that my dad was successful at when I was in middle school and high school. So again, you know, watching my dad build and scale a fintech company gave me some interest to try to follow in his footsteps and do something in a similar space. This is going to be a slightly weird question. I wonder where we'll get. What did money mean to you growing up? You know, especially when you start seeing fintech businesses being built or you kind of start getting some distance from, you know, the day to day of your own budgeting to the handling of money for large numbers of people. There are some insights, I think, that can come out about it. So as you were getting your education and and seeing this entrepreneurial experience around you, like, how did you think about money and the role that it plays I mean, both in your life and in the economy? Interesting question. I, I don't think I've been asked this one before on a podcast. You know, I think I, I joke that both 
environmentally and genetically, like I had no choice but to be an entrepreneur. I feel like I'm wired that way. And my dad taught me from a, from a young age to think that way. You know, as you know, the entrepreneurial journey is filled with ups and downs. And that was my dad's life and what he, you know, taught me about from a young age. He taught me to have a very high tolerance for risk. You know, he, he was very transparent with me about financials from a young age and, in, in the early days of phone charge, you know, it was very difficult times to try to make payroll and get the business off the ground. And then the mid and later stages of phone charge, there were very good times. You know, my dad from a young age always taught me about gambling, how to play poker, how to play blackjack, how to play craps. And I just had this, I think, relationship with money where, you know, I, I, I felt like I could create ideas to build a lot of money, but also felt like that some of the volatility and the roller coaster was something that I was ready to sign up for. Fascinating. So there you are, ready to sign up for the roller coaster of risk. What was the environment like when you were founding the company? Like, how did you land on the problem and what was the context for the problem? For sure. So the the context for the problem is we set out to build a solution to automate the long-term care Medicaid application process. My dad was telling myself and John Gersey about meetings he had with his elder law attorney. And the elder law attorney was complaining about having to review hundreds or thousands of pages of bank statements and other financial documents for every Medicaid application. When someone applies for Medicaid to enter a nursing home, they have to submit 60 months worth of financials to prove to the government that they should be eligible for these benefits. And the way it works historically is an elder law attorney collects the financial information reviews the 60 months worth of data page by page, line by line, makes a determination, sends that to the government, and then someone on the government side reviews it again page by page, line by line to determine eligibility. When we first discovered this problem, we were shocked. You know, Why in this day and age are, are well-paid attorneys and government employees reviewing financial documents page by page, line by line? So it really just started off as a research project. It was an interesting problem trying to wrap our heads around why this problem existed. You know, the first thing that we did was began to research OCR, optical character recognition, and other data capture type technologies to understand why the problem existed. Why can't machines read documents like bank statements and pay stubs and brokerage statements with a high degree of accuracy? So in our research, we found out that there were dozens of companies who built OCR technology But all of them across the board struggled with two things. One was variation in format. Structured documents that appear in the exact format every single time are pretty straightforward to read. Semi-structured and unstructured documents where the format can vary quite significantly are much more challenging. The second problem is image quality. Electronic documents are pretty straightforward to read. Scans and faxes and cell phone images and images with someone's thumb in the picture or coffee stain are much more difficult to read. The result is varying formats and image quality meant that no OCR product on the market could read documents like bank statements and pay stubs with a very high degree of accuracy. And hence, we saw an opportunity to, you know, to jump in and create a new type of solution, which ultimately became Aquilus. In 2014, which I think is when you founded the company, we didn't yet have very much kind of machine vision as part of the mainstream. I think even the error rate on machine vision being able to categorize like cats from dogs was still fairly high 
And the processing that was necessary to do that with high fidelity wasn't quite there yet. So people were still kind of better than AI at doing these tasks. And the narratives were very much like AI is narrow, it's hard to teach, you need super specialized quants to solve any particular problem, and that's not going to be generalizable. At the same time, we're kind of like on the edge of things going much more mainstream. I remember also around that time, Google Photos released their you know, people tagging and object and pad tagging offering as part of Google Photos. So can you tell me like about the state of image recognition broadly in that moment? And how did you have the confidence that this technology could improve to the level that you need, could work at scale and could be commercial? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that was one of the things that made us so excited to jump in and, and build this company is when we did our early tests of OCR and data capture products, we were surprised at how poor the results were. You know, the, the results of reading a bank statement using OCR were so poor that in fact, it didn't even make sense to OCR it in the first place. It was easier to just do the entire review manually page by page because, you know, the, the work involved in performing quality control on OCR was perhaps more onerous than just reviewing the document from scratch. So that that was kind of the problem set existed that existed and again, you know, what we I think what we did well in the early days is we were very practical and we had the realization that in order to achieve high enough accuracy for key high stakes financial decisions, humans were a requirement. You know, one of the one of the things that we stumbled upon in our research which was pretty inspirational to us was learning about Google's use of CAPTCHA tasks during the Google Books initiative. So Google used OCR to try to digitize millions of old books, menus, and magazines. But because of the problems that we're describing, they weren't able to read all of the text accurately. So what they did was quite brilliant. They took words that they couldn't read with a high degree of confidence, and they routed them to people like me and you, asking us to prove that we're not a robot and type in the CAPTCHA task. Little did we know we're helping Google you know, perform data verification on top of its OCR engine on old books, menus, and magazines. And Google used all sorts of interesting quality control techniques, like, for example, routing the same task to a statistically significant number of individuals or using a control word where sometimes a CAPTCHA will have two words. One is a control. The other is a snippet from a 1930s New York Times article. Long story short, Google was able to digitize 30 million plus books, menus, and magazines with perfect accuracy. And they were able to use that human verified data as labeled data in a feedback loop to teach their systems to constantly get smarter. So that this concept of human plus AI equals perfect output, we were fascinated by that concept. We decided to apply that concept to a very targeted use case of reading bank statements and other financial documents. And I think you know, that, that, that's why we were successful in the early days, right? We were very practical. We wanted to solve the problem completely for our customers. And while many other OCR companies were popping up trying to reinvent the wheel and compete directly with Google or Amazon or Microsoft or Abby or Kofax or any of these OCR companies that have been around forever, instead, what we said is, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's build a data cap capture gateway use the best available off-the-shelf technologies to get us the highest possible raw accuracy. And then let's layer in this unique human-in-the-loop workflow where as quickly as possible, we can validate OCR output 
and return perfect output to our customer every single time. And then over time, we'll figure out how to use that perfect output to drive more automation and continue adding more value to our customers. And I'm sure that state of the art has changed quite a bit over the last nine years. I'm curious, in terms of your go-to-market, did that hypothesis around elder law, was that the right hypothesis? Or did you find new pools of demand and new customers? For sure. So we've, we've really focused on the lending space. That's been the biggest opportunity for Acrylis. When we first launched the product for elder law attorneys, the beta version of the product, I was actually Acrylis's first data verifier. So a document would come in, we'd use OCR to read some of the, the document, I would key in all the transactions, make sure it looked perfect, hit submit, and the elder law attorney would get back perfectly accurate data. And it was a truly magical experience for the elder law attorney who had tested other OCR products and then tested Acrylis. It was like night and day, the accuracy that we could provide. And we knew that we had product market fit. And you know the, the, the challenge was to then figure out how to improve margin, how to improve turnaround time, and how to drive more automation. But just from a data accuracy perspective, we knew we had something special. So we launched to elder law attorneys, and we were adding you know dozens of elder law attorneys to the platform in the beta days. And these customers also became our first customers, our first paying customers in early 2016. In mid-2016, we were introduced to one of the the largest non-bank small business lenders, a firm called Strategic Funding Source here in New York City, which since has rebranded to Capitus. And we met with the CEO and chief product officer of, of, of Strategic Funding Source. We did a demo of our product, and they said, you know, we've been looking for a product like this for years. This would really, really solve our pain point. So we, of course, you know, tried to do some discovery and ask more about their business, and we found that they had dozens of people in their back office reviewing bank statements page by page, line by line. What strategic funded funding source needed to make the product viable was two things. They needed faster turnaround times. Initially, we were guaranteeing 48 hours or less. The customer would get back perfect data. Small business lenders needed four hours or less. The second thing they needed was vertical-specific analytics. So reading the bank statements was one part of the challenge. What a small business lender really needs is they need to look at bank transactions in order to understand what's the revenue of the business, what's the debt capacity, has the business taken a loan from a competitor, what do seasonal cash flows look like? So Strategic said to us, hey, if you can nail these two things, we will become your flagship customer in small business lending. And for us, it was just such a compelling opportunity of short sales cycle, high average customer value that we knew that, you know, although it was working on the elder law attorney and Medicaid side, we had conviction that making this pivot and focusing on the lending space would really supercharge our business. And it did exactly that. Strategic became our first, you know, early small business lending customer, but pretty quickly thereafter, we were able to onboard folks like OnDeck and Lendio and National Funding and Fora Financial and, you know, PayPal and Ultimately, small business lending became the, the biggest area of growth for the company and really what, what put Acrylis on the map. In terms of that product promise, there's nothing more helpful than a customer saying, this is exactly what I want, can you build it? Unless it's a giant bank and then you spend three years building it and it never works. In building that product, can you talk about your journey? Like, What did it take to get to that four-hour turnaround time? What did it take to get the data to be you know, accurate? What sort of technology did you need to pull together? What kind of human intervention did you need to put together? And, and what was that like? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, once we got the initial beta product out the door, and we 
demonstrated our ability to achieve 99 plus percent accuracy on every file that came in. The next goal was to add automation and make it more scalable. I began networking and looking for a business partner to help with operations and technology. And I got introduced to a fantastic operator named Vic Dua, who joined the company in 2016 and has been our chief operating officer for the last you know, seven plus years. Vic previously led operations at Handy, which is a home services company. He was managing a crowd of professionals who can come clean your apartment or mount a TV and so forth. And you know, his work in managing this crowd was actually very similar to the, the professional quality control aspect that we wanted to build out for, for document processing. So Vic joined in 2016, and we began implementing a variety of different automation and operational techniques to get the process to under four hours and to make it more and more automated. I think a, a key point that I want to reiterate is we, were, we decided not to reinvent the wheel when it came to OCR, which I think was a great decision in the early days. And even today really sets us up for future success in terms of we have the ability to very seamlessly plug in the best in class technologies as they become available in the market. So another way to think about our business is our business is kind of like a scaffolding business. A document comes in, we use the best in class OCR technology to get an accurate raw read. For example, Amazon Textract is better at structured documents. Google Cloud is better at semi-structured documents. So we select the right tech vendor. We get a raw read. We then move into our crowd, crowd verification component where Acrolis employees very quickly perform targeted data verification on the fields that we couldn't read with perfect confidence. And the result goes back to the customer. So the first part of the battle was making sure that that operational component of reviewing fields happened as quickly as possible. The way that we did this was by parallelizing tasks. So a document comes in, we identify the fields that can't automatically be confirmed, we break them into micro tasks, and we parallelize the tasks so that multiple workers can work on the same file at the same time. We then run algorithmic checks to make sure our workers did the work correctly, and perfect results go back to the customer. Over time, as we see more and more at-bats at the same document type, we can begin to build our own automation. So we began to build a series of different automation workflows involving machine learning and also involving templates. What this allowed us to do is it allowed us to circumvent third-party OCR when our own technology became mature enough so that it could outperform the third-party system. So through these two prongs of one, making the operations more efficient, and then two, building automation to get higher accuracy levels, we were able to make massive improvements in turnaround time and automation, you know, meeting and exceeding our customers' needs. And even today, you know, we're constantly pushing the envelope in terms of automating as many documents as we possibly can. And for the documents that do require human touch, making them as light touch as possible so we can return the data to the customer in seconds or at worst in minutes. Could you talk about the evolution of the state of the art in machine vision and you know what has changed like in the underlying core capability of what it was like when you started versus what it is like now sort of what are the the fundamental drivers of difference in performance and i remember in the early days it seemed so magical that pandora could recommend for you the next song you know, or or Amazon could recommend to you the product it might want. I think the biggest change has been improvement in 
ability to handle semi-structured and unstructured documents and also lower quality images. You know, when we first started, it was really, really difficult for machines to deal with strange formats and poor quality images. Over time, a lot of companies have invested in things like, you know, on the, on the image quality side, pre-processing techniques to flatten images and auto-rotate, you know, techniques to read handwriting with a higher degree of accuracy. And then, of course, more recently, the, the rise in large language models has helped dramatically in terms of performance on semi-structured and unstructured documents. Again, I think the advantage for Octralis is we are set up from day one to, to plug in these technology upgrades and deliver that capability to our end customer. So most of that work over the years for us was done through our partnerships with Google and Amazon as Google and Amazon launched enhancements to their o- OCR AI platforms. We were able to ingest those enhancements, build them into our workflows, and ultimately offer those enhancements to our customers. More recently, this year, we actually announced our our integration with OpenAI. We were one of the early partners to integrate OpenAI GBT embeddings, which came out earlier this year, which, again, was just a a tool to give us a lift on some of the semi-structured and unstructured character recognition. And I think you know that is a promise that we will continue to deliver on for our customers. As the latest and greatest becomes available in OCR AI, it's very difficult for banks and lenders to integrate and, and stand up these, these technologies on their own, what Octalus can provide is A, a vehicle to deliver that capability seamlessly, but B, and importantly, a human-in-the-loop guardrail to protect against any possible hallucination or error. And that's what we found that bank, banks and lenders want, right? They want the latest and greatest technologies, but they also want this compliance function to ensure that an AI you know, potentially making an error in reading a document isn't resulting in straight through processing for a high stakes loan decision. And I think our business model of fusing AI with human in the loop quality control really, really resonates with, you know, the current rise in OCR AI capabilities. So from an industry perspective, you're leveraging what the big tech companies are able to generate at the edge of possible research. And then on the other side, you are essentially prepackaging or structuring the service in such a way that a lender would not be able to integrate or do themselves. It's an easy decision to work with you. Can I ask why the tech companies themselves don't reach further into the finance industry in this way? You know, like, why do they provide the raw OCR capabilities, but don't go and try to to pitch to the to these companies directly that are your clients? For sure. I think that the key here is horizontal versus vertical. So most of the big OCR AI companies provide horizontal products that service use cases across many different industries, right? You can use AWS OCR for healthcare or insurance or wealth management or lending or you know any, any use case under the sun, you can use the building blocks to get part of the way there. What we've done that has made us successful in lending is we built very vertical specific solutions using the big tech components as building blocks. So I think there's a few different buckets to this and it goes back to the original, you know, conversation we had with our fund friends at Capitus and, you know, help us build vertical specific analytics for the small business use case, right? So the few buckets are one, human verification. High stakes decisions require perfectly accurate data. We don't settle for 89 or 91 or 93 or 95 or 97% accurate data, 
we do the human in the loop validation, reconciliation checks, and we ensure that we get to 99 plus percent every single time. Second, we run fraud detection on the document. Fraud is a really, really big pain point for our lenders. We have built a technology that analyzes the metadata of a document to see if the document has been tampered or photoshopped or altered with. And we catch all sorts of crazy things. Borrowers changing their account holder information, adding extra zeros to their balances, hiding certain transactions, taking a 2018 statement and making it look like a 2023 statement. One stat there is about 6% of the applications that we see from our lending customers have some form of suspicious activity or fraud. And in some cases, we're helping a lender you know, literally stopping them from putting $50,000 out the door later that afternoon in a business loan because we've identified that the documents are fraudulent. The third piece is analytics. So in business lending, again, it's, you know, calculating things like the revenue and seasonal cash flows of a business, which become inputs directly into the lender scoring model. You know, over the years, we've also expanded into mortgage lending and consumer lending, including use cases in personal and auto and, you know, various different pockets of lending. We, we offer similar capabilities on the consumer side. On the consumer side, the, the lenders are most interested in, in income calculations. So we synthesize information from bank statements and pay stubs and W-2s and other tax documents. We not only return the raw data, we also synthesize the data into income calculations that go directly into the lender scoring model. And then the final piece is vertical-specific integrations. So our data integrates directly into our customers' loan origination system in fields that used to be keyed in manually. So I think you know a big, a big reason why we've been successful is we don't completely change the workflow of our customer. We populate into existing workflows, but we just make the, the process significantly faster, more accurate, you know, AI fraud detection built in, superior analytics built in, and having that delivery mechanism directly into a lender's system you know, has been very beneficial. So in summary, it's these three or four vertical specific enhancements, so to speak, that make it massively easier for a lender or a bank to integrate with Oculus versus trying to take the raw ingredients from AWS or OpenAI and then solving for all of these vertical specific pain points on top of that horizontal technology. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like you're not taking any structured data from your customers and returning it. You're taking the unstructured documents, reading them and passing the data back. So here's kind of where it gets interesting, right? So that 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 historically has been the focus of Oculus. We take the documents, whether it's electronic PDFs or images, we turn those documents into structured data, we layer on analytics and we return it to our customers. What's happened over time is two interesting things. First, in small business lending, that's our biggest market. And I think it's safe to say that we are a market leader in small business lending. You know, we service about 150 customers in the space. A majority of the leading players use Oculus to automate their underwriting engines. And we've built very robust cash flow analytics for the small business lending industry where we really have had Oculus become a central part of the underwriting automation stack for large small business lenders. So what's happened over the years is small business lenders have actually started routing us Plaid data and other digital banking data to use Oculus as a normalization and standardization engine, right? They get some percentage of their flow in from bank statements and PDFs and some percentage of their flow in digitally. What's valuable to the lender is having one standardized set of analytics to assess the health of these small businesses, regardless of the source of data. 
So in small business, we've become an infrastructure layer where we standardize both document data and digital banking data into cash flow analytics that fuel small business lending decisions. On the consumer side, the inverse has happened. So on the consumer side, you know, we're earlier in our journey in mortgage and consumer and we, you know, we see big opportunity there, but the consumer space is more, more complicated in the sense that folks who really want to do deeper scoring work on the consumer side have to become a credit reporting agency in order to provide data that, you know, that, that enables these lending decisions. So on the consumer side, what's happened is actually the inverse. You know, Plaid, for example, has white labeled Oculus into their income product. So Plaid has a product called Plaid Income. If it allows a consumer to key in their username and password to connect payroll data for a lender, but many people are not able to do that. They don't know their username and password or a payroll system doesn't support digital connectivity. For whatever reason, these borrowers who are or, or applicants who are not able to connect their data, they need a fallback option. So what Plaid did is they embedded the Oculus capability to ingest W-2s and pay stubs so that Plaid can provide this digital plus documents equals full coverage concept to their customers in consumer lending or property management or you know another use case. We've signed similar deals with other companies like TrueWork and Argyle and Truve and several others where adding the document capability to complement the digital capability results in true true full coverage for the lender. So that's been our strategy is to you know dominate the document component of the stack and then partner with best-in-class data aggregators to ultimately offer our lenders a full-coverage infrastructure solution. I can definitely see how that expands the product and quite an interesting use case. Like You couldn't make this up a priori, but when you have such a large population of different kinds of clients, I can see how you'd need all sorts of these capabilities. I wanted to ask you about integration and developers. And I know a lot of companies that are technology infrastructure companies, you know, their go-to-market is to focus on the developer experience and making that as seamless as possible. There's a ton of large embedded finance companies that really design their APIs more than they design, you know, in the same way that you would design UI and UX and user experience. Can you talk about how you think about developers and if there are any personas that you use, and then how do you create offerings that developers enjoy interacting with? Yeah, for sure. I think at Oculus, we've focused on parity for business users and developers. So we have different sets of customers. Some of our customers come in through developer experience. Some come in through business user experience. We have two mechanisms, you know, two, two ways that, that a customer can use Oculus. Customers can use our APIs. And they can also use our dashboard. And the, the two experiences were designed to work hand in hand. So I'll talk through a basic customer workflow, and then I'll, I'll circle back to talk more about developer experience. So starting with the customer workflow, a pizza store is applying for a small business loan. They go to ondeck.com to apply for that loan. They're asked to upload three months of bank statements right when they upload to OnDeck. Our API sit right behind OnDeck's application portal. The documents are, are routed over to Oculus. They're analyzed. In the vast majority of cases, we're able to populate data instantly into OnDeck systems with all of these different things: fraud, you know, fraud detection, analytics, and so forth, delivered directly into OnDeck's back office system. 
for the majority of applicants, on deck can make a decision right off the bat, right? They have the data and they can auto decision or take the data on their end and determine pricing and, and ultimately the underwriting decision. If we flag fraud or potential suspicious activity on the document, on deck is able to come into our dashboard and they can have fraud analysts work with visualizations in our dashboard to perform a deeper analysis before moving forward with the decision. So, you know, in that way, our API and our dashboard coexist and are meant to, you know, to work collaboratively to help a customer get the best possible experience. From an API perspective, you know, we try to take guidance from best in class companies like Plaid in terms of making our API experience as clean and as thoughtful as possible to streamline sales processes. We built things like a self-service checkout where, you know, a user can begin using Acrolis without ever talking to a sales representative on our team. And in some cases, that allows us to start with one small use case where a developer might find Acrolis, begin tinkering around with our instant solutions or you know some of our newer stuff. And then ultimately, over time, we can get in contact with that person and work on a bigger upsell. On the flip side, we also have an account-based marketing approach where we can talk to business leaders, you know, demonstrate a nice, clean user interface where a business user, user without much training can get on board, can start using our dashboard, and can have more of a handheld experience where they're working with our, you know, our SDRs or our account executives to get spoon-fed all of this information. So, you know, our strategy has been a dual-pronged strategy. That has been an effective approach for us to target both developers and business users. And the strategy has paid off with a lot of growth, as you mentioned, and, and a leading market position. Can you talk about just that process or just feeling the emotion of building a company that succeeds and, and growing it to the scale that you have and any challenges and stretching that you've had to do to make it work? What were some of the inflection points in just being able to get the company through to the scale where it is today? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think it totally is a roller coaster and you just have to be prepared for the ultimate perseverance and, and grit and just ability to power through anything that's thrown your way. I mean, Acrolis has been a roller coaster. It's been a ton of fun. We think we're in the early innings of the potential, but there certainly have been ups and downs along the journey. You know, it took us two plus years to get real product market fit and get, get, you know, get to the point where we we're able to start really ramping revenue. As mentioned up front, we started with the elder law use case. We made a pivot into small business, which was a risky move to focus our product roadmap on this new area of lending when elder law was kind of working. But we, we made that pivot. It turned out to be a great decision. 2017, 2018, 2019, the business was growing fantastically. We began attracting, you know, awesome venture investors like QED investors and Oak HCFT and FinTech Collective and others to really help supercharge our growth. We hit a high point in, I think it was 2019 or early 2020. We were named by Inc. Magazine as the fastest growing fintech company nationwide. And, you know, things were working, right? We were, we were creating this pull mechanism in small business lending where if a customer wasn't using Acrolis, they knew that they needed to get on board with Acrolis to compete with, with others in terms of speed, right? We were able to do the process eight times faster than a manual review, five times more cost-effective. It was just such an undeniable ROI that all of the big players in small business lending needed to move over to our platform. So things were great up and to the right, you know, signed a, a lease for our, our new beautiful office in the financial district here in New York City in February 2020. And then all of a sudden, March 2020, COVID hits, and without exaggeration, our revenue nearly goes to zero. 
you know, small business lenders basically all paused their lending operations at that time when small businesses were forced to shut down with the pandemic. And we went into a panic. We started spending money and all of a sudden our revenue wasn't there. And we, you know, were burning money and needed to figure out what to do. What we did at that time was we pivoted the business again and we focused on the paycheck protection program. The PPP program was, you know, was brought out to help small businesses in need get access to capital to power through a challenging period. For Oculus, it meant pivoting our business to ingest new types of documents and forms, documents like 941s and 944s and payroll reports, which we had never seen before. Our business model of using third-party OCR plus human in the loop allowed us to take on those new document types quite quickly and then figure out how to build in automation over time. And it went from a dire situation to a huge success story for the company. We worked with fintech leaders like Square and Bluevine and Cross River Bank, who ended up doing really, really significant volumes in in paycheck protection program loans. We were able to help our local small businesses, which was a great feel-good moment for the company. And we we filled the revenue bucket, right? It wasn't the true recurring revenue that that investors get excited about, but we did a great deal of non-recurring revenue to help offset the loss in our core business and to help us power through the pandemic. As things started to normalize in the pandemic, we began expanding, moving into the mortgage market and consumer lending and building out our document type support. Again, starting to see success there, onboarding a bunch of customers in the mortgage space, folks like Loan Depot and New Res and Better Mortgage and Tomo and a bunch of others. And it was clear that we had an opportunity to do more than just small business lending. And we began to see traction in this in this broader lending universe. And you know, just as we were seeing more and more traction there, all of a sudden, 11 straight interest rate hikes and you know, volume volatility and mortgage and small business and so forth. And that is something that we're still working through today. So it continues to be a roller coaster. It's a fun ride along all of the ups and downs. And all things considered, we're thrilled about where we are. You know, looking back, doing this almost you know, a little over nine years now, I, I can't believe how far the company has come. But what I'm most excited about is it, it truly feels like we're in the early innings of the potential to do more in existing verticals that we already service and also to take the infrastructure that we've built and ultimately apply it to additional verticals that have a similar need for fast and accurate document review. What advice would you give other entrepreneurs who are going through that emotional roller coaster of my revenue went to zero? How did you deal with that set of emotions? How did you stabilize yourself? And then, you know, for others, what lesson can they take in terms of being able to get through a moment like that? You know, the biggest advantage of being a startup or growth stage company is that we can move fast. It's very difficult for a big company to change the direction of the ship. For a startup or a growth stage company, it may be painful internally to change direction. But when the market and customers dictate a change of direction, we have the ability to do that. So we always try to see a crisis as a potential opportunity, right? All these bad things are happening. What are the potential positives and how can we transform this into an opportunity? And that's what we did during COVID. And that's what we're doing again during this interesting environment, right? In, in COVID, it was, okay, how do we help existing customer base? How do we take advantage of our OCR plus human in the loop infrastructure to make the most of what's happening in this market today? And we were able to literally within a matter of weeks build an entirely new workflow and new use case that ended up 
you know, helping millions of small businesses across the country. And I think that that ability to, to do a quick pivot and change is unique to startups and growth stage companies and something that, you know, I think, I, I think that companies can really take advantage of if they see the opportunity and, and are willing to take the risk of making a bet on, you know, on a, on a pivot. Right. But how do you keep yourself steady as a leader in that kind of environment? You know, lots of people might have opportunity ahead of them, but aren't able to, to survive in that because it's, it's hard. What are some of your practices for figuring out how to move through adversity? I think one key point is leading with transparency. You know, we share our financials with the full company on our all hands every single month. Our management team is deeply familiar with, you know, all of the things that are going on in the business. And we try to just have open discussions about what's working well and what's not working well to get to conviction around the next business moves. I think also, you know, focusing on the big picture, like I think in, in the case of, of COVID, like we did not view it as a pivot, a permanent pivot to the business. We viewed it as an adjustment to help us power through the, you know, the, the economic times, but ultimately to help us stay the course and get to the big picture. So we have this big North Star that, you know, everybody knows what we're skating towards and what we're trying to achieve in our core customer bases. And along the way, there are these event, events that come in that we have to adjust and adapt and react to. But I think you know the, the challenge is striking the right balance between being transparent, focusing everyone on the big picture, but also having this open-mindedness to, you know, to adjust based on the macro and based on what customers are telling us. Striking that balance is really challenging, but I think we've been able to do it well at Acrylis here over the last couple of years. We are, you know, of course, always staying attuned to what's happening in the, on the market to keep refining and polishing our strategy for the go forward. For me, it's meditation and physical fitness are the ways that I deal with stress. I think it's very difficult to move through a moment that really kind of shocks the company. You know, and I've had a number of experiences where I've had to implement restructuring or, you know, like the funding wasn't there for the next quarter or the markets just collapsed, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90%. And I think it is really important to have practices that you do for yourself that can get you through those moments because then once you've kind of saved yourself, then you can be the transparent leader and step up to help other people and kind of provide that clarity. But I do think, you know, startup founders in particular, it's a tough gig. Yeah, for sure. And I think to, to that end, like a few things that have been productive for me. One, first and foremost, I, I am in a, a tech founder peer group. One of our investors helped get this going. I think it was maybe 2018 when it started. And several New York City-based tech founders got in a peer group and We've met once a month together for the last, you know, five plus years in building our businesses. And it's just been really interesting to see how the different businesses have grown and matured over the years. And I've become super close friends with a bunch of the other founder CEOs in that group over the years. That support system has been critical to me. My business partner, Vic, and I both work with an executive coach who's kind of like a, an ultimate outlet for us for all of this challenging stuff and also is somewhat of a marriage counselor between me and Vic, helping us you know, work out our own disagreements and things like that. 
and then to your point about, you know, just unplugging and taking your mind off. Like for me, it's, it's, I like to, I like to play sports. I play basketball once or twice a week. I play in a league here in New York City, which is a ton of fun. And then more recently, over the last couple of years, I've been getting really into to pickleball. I played racket sports my whole life growing up. I was a big ping pong player. And then when pickleball popped up during the pandemic, my dad became totally obsessed with pickleball. He got me hooked on it. And now I, you know, go home. To, I, I go visit my parents in Long Island a bunch, especially during the summer. And pickleball is another, you know, another great outlet to take your mind off work. Pickleball has made it all through the U.S., and I think it's starting to infest London as well. But we'll leave that for for another time. You know, to close us out, you know, how do you think about the types of trends that are going to grow in the next few years in your space? Like, what is it? around the corner that's exciting for you that yes you want the company to focus on but more broadly in in the AI space in the embedded finance space and in digital lending what are the kinds of things you're paying attention to for sure i mean i think the biggest one is just the rise of large language models and the integration of new technologies by OpenAI and others into financial services i think in other industries there's a lower barrier to entry you know there's there's more tolerance for risk and errors and you know potential hallucinations and the stakes aren't as big right i think in financial services it will be really interesting to see how banks and lenders go about adopting these technologies at Oculus, we see it as a huge opportunity for us to deliver these latest and greatest capabilities to our customers but also to give them the peace of mind of this human quality control piece ensuring that high stakes decisions are made with very accurate data I think the second interesting trend that we see and that we, you know, are are involved in in the lending space is the rise of cash flow based underwriting. I think there's been tremendous progress in cash flow based underwriting in the small business space. Most of the small business lenders are using cash flow data as the primary input to their underwriting workflows. I think on the consumer side, it's been more difficult to get there in terms of adoption. I know there are a lot of great companies building cash flow based underwriting, but the shift from credit to cash flow has been more gradual on the consumer side. You know, at Oculus, we are firm believers that cash flow is the best predictor of financial health. And we're excited to, to help, help, help lenders and banks evolve underwriting practices and implement cash flow more closely into their scoring models. Fantastic. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. If our audience wants to learn more about you or about Oculus, where should they go? Best place is Oculus.com and always feel free to shoot me an email at sbobley at Oculus.com. You know, love talking about this stuff. Happy to connect and Lex, really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.